Hey, this is Miles Fisher. Thanks for listening to Coffee with the Greats. Today we're speaking with David Rubenstein, the founder of the Carlyle Group and well-known philanthropist supporting many of America's historical treasures. Like all guests, David has lived an extraordinary life. He's amassed wealth that's difficult to comprehend and has become a decision maker at many of the most prestigious institutions in America, Smithsonian, Kennedy Center, Harvard. But he shares with us that he was not a big dreamer growing up and the heroes of his youth were not rich. Rather, he was an only child to modest blue-collar Baltimore parents. Anxiously asking, what would my mother think, helped him navigate a career through law to the White House and the pinnacles of private capital to the pillars of intellectual prestige. Personally speaking, I'll say I was astonished to learn at the very end of our conversation that he founded the Carlyle Group at the tender age of 37. (laughs) That's how old I am. Hey, here's to late bloomers. If you're new to the podcast and enjoy hearing the nuanced wisdom of those who've lived full lives, check out earlier episodes where we get personal with other financial masterminds like Mike Milken, Jamie Dimon, and Ajay Banga. If you're not a finance guy like me, you might enjoy episodes with Bob Iger, Roger Staubach, or Jeremy Zimmer. Either way, please do subscribe so that you don't miss who we talk with next. But for today, brew up a cup of Bixby and enjoy another thoughtful episode of Coffee with the Greats with David Rubenstein. I was born in Baltimore. And my father worked at the post office. He was a postal clerk. My mother, basically, uh, I was their only child. She worked at, at as a selling ladies' dresses after I started going to school. Neither of my parents graduated from college or high school. My father dropped out of high school to go into World War II. And then he came back, met my mother. They got married at what seems like a crazy age, 20 and 17. But apparently in those days, it wasn't that unusual. And, and your father uh, enlisted as a Marine, is that correct? He did. He did. As a general rule of thumb, uh, most parents, most children want to please their parents. Obviously, some kids are rebellious. But if you're the only child and you realize, you know, your parents don't have a lot of wealth and they're not, uh, you know, um, despicable people, you probably want to please them. So I did want to please them. And the only way I could please them, since I wasn't a great athlete, was probably by doing well in school. And since I wasn't really a genius, there were plenty of geniuses floating around. I, the only way I could do well in school was by working hard. So by putting a lot of time in. Now, as we all know, putting time in doesn't mean necessarily that you're smarter or you will get better grades, but at least it helps a bit. So I just I did work very hard uh, in, in that. And probably because I was not socially gifted, um, I wasn't going out and going to a lot of parties. Um, and I wasn't a drinker, um, by spending a lot of time working, I could um, eliminate the argument that I wasn't socially graceful. I could say, well, I would like to go to a party, but I'm too busy working because I have to do well in school. So nobody would say, well, that's terrible. So I could I kill two birds with one stone. I could hide my lack of social graces, but I also could get better grades by working hard. So that's what I did. And outside of the athletic field and, and, and outside of academic uh, interests, what what posters did you have on your high school bedroom? I mean, did you did you collect car, like what just kind of hobby? Did you collect music LPs? Well, I had um, 
one of the the best collections in in my neighborhood of baseball cards. I had a terrific collection of baseball cards. Uh, unfortunately, when I went to college, my mother threw them all away. Today, they're worth, you know, I'm sure a million dollars or something because I had all these mint collection, these great cards. But so I collected baseball cards or or things like that. After a while, I collected stamps, I collected coins, all the usual things that boys collect. Um, I didn't collect a lot of girlfriends, but I did collect a lot of um, a lot of uh, other things that were easier to deal with. Well, you're, you've yeah. also become a truly world-class collector. And so as you started these younger collections, were you also entrepreneurial? I mean, did you flip and make a buck? I mean, when I was young and I had collections of baseball cards, I thought it was always interesting to make a little profit and buy. Yeah, I, I probably didn't because my parents really, my mother, my father had a blue collar mindset. You get paid a certain amount of money and you work your 40 hours a week. And that was it. There was no entrepreneurial instincts in my family. All my family worked in government kind of jobs. And I can't say that, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I was poverty stricken. Uh, my parents only had one child and we had a tiny little house. Um, it was 800 square feet, um, uh, two bedrooms, one bathroom. And I, I, you know, I had enough spending money or my relatives, my aunts and uncles would give me some cash from time to time. So I wasn't poverty stricken, but I didn't have money to do the big things. And the biggest expenditure I ever asked my parents to make for me was uh, to buy me a world book encyclopedia. Those were, you know, if you remember what encyclopedia is, but encyclopedias before the internet, they had these books and, and, and uh, they, the world. I'm not, book. I'm not that young. I'm okay. not that young. So, so I, you know, my, some of my friends had the world book encyclopedia. So I finally convinced my parents, I it cost $120. It was a lot of money for them. Uh, and they bought it. And I, you know, of course had to pretend I was reading it every day because that was otherwise <laughs> the reason they did it. But I, I was mostly interested in the end in uh, politics. Um, I was really interested in government and politics. And I thought, you have to put yourself in the mindset uh, that of those days. In the 1950s, there were no billionaires. There were no hedge funds. There were no private equity funds. There were no tech startups. If you went into business, you went into business and basically your family had a business, you joined it. Or if you weren't Jewish, you were WASPy, you could go to Morgan Guarantee or Procter & Gamble or something and work your way up or something. But if you were Jewish, you might work in a, in a, uh, you know, you might try to become a professional, a doctor, lawyer, dentist or something like that. And, um, you know, but there wasn't a, a kind of a, uh, in my family, a big focus on money. My parents never had it. They didn't know much about it. And so I was interested in politics and I didn't care about making money because honestly, you, you did. You, there were no heroes who were there were no Bill Gates kind of heroes to look up to. You didn't you just it doesn't exist. So the heroes I look up to were people were political figures, John Kennedy or somebody like that. So I would say uh, my interest was in politics. And I don't know why I just really like politics and, and government. Um, but I didn't think I had the, the charm or good looks or money to be a candidate. So I always saw myself like a Ted Sorensen figure behind the scenes, writing the speeches or that kind of stuff. And that's that's basically what I was doing. So, uh, David, you, you go to college. Uh, you're civic minded already. You have extraordinary horsepower up here. And as I gather, you know, you make, you learn early on, I want to learn how to write. I want to learn how to speak. And I'm going to read more than anyone else. Right. Um, who, who taught you at that time, how to write other than great authors? Um, we had a, in the 10th grade in my high school, there was a very famous high school English teacher who had taught at this high school for roughly 50 years or eventually taught 50 years. He was the best, you know, writer or professor or teacher I ever had of writing. And so he, taught me how to write in, you know, in a simple way. 
And I now realize what a great benefit it was because while I'm not Ernest Hemingway, I can write in King's English and in reasonably intelligible way. And I am amazed at how many people I have to read their memos or their other writings and they're awful. And some people just don't know how to string a sentence together or write. So I really um, appreciate the, the writing skills I got then. And then like anything else, to perfect it, you have to do it. So I just, over the years, learned how to write. And I just, by, by practicing writing, writing, writing. Now, I wasn't writing novels or the great American novel. I was writing the great American memo. But, you know, that was all I was writing, memos. Now I'm writing books. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 uh, you know, I do that. And in terms of speaking, public speaking is something I can do reasonably well now because I do a lot of it, just practice, practice, practice. So I, when I was in Dallas, I gave a speech uh, maybe a year ago, the SMU, uh, one of the SMU lectures they have. And, and I can, yeah, yeah and I, I can do that. I can make a speech with no notes for an hour and not, you know, hesitate, not do anything. And people tend to like it, go up and get a standing ovation. Uh, but I, that's because I practiced for many, many years. I couldn't do this when I was 20, but I just, you know, you get a lot of invitations. And when I was working in the White House, and nobody else senior wanted to go make speeches, I would I would take every speaking invitation I could get. And then when I got into private equity, I would take every speaking invitation. So eventually I learned how to do that and, and learn the tricks of it. And the same is true in reading. Uh, you, you can't read too much in my view, and you've probably seen my comments on it. And, and it's just that I, I think reading books is better than reading anything, but I, I just think you gotta practice and practice and practice reading and writing and, 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 and uh, talking. I, I, you know, I, I still buy about six newspapers every single day. Yep. And I like to read the papers, carry them around, so forth and so on. Um, my children, uh, my two daughters went to Harvard. And, you know, so they're reasonably intelligent. Uh, where do they get their news? I, I'm embarrassed to say where they get their news. Um, LinkedIn. I mean, either LinkedIn or Facebook. That's where they get the news. I've never, I'm not a member of LinkedIn or Facebook, so I don't know what's on it. But I assume it can't be as good as the New York Times. But it must be because that's where they get their news. I, and anyway, I, I do like uh, to read the news and, and watch the news. Walter Cronkite, interestingly, he was the famous broadcaster on CBS. It was only 15 minutes a night initially. So everybody got their news by 15 minutes a night. That was it. It wasn't a half an hour and there wasn't cable TV or anything. He was forced to retire by a Texas man named Dan Rather. Walter Cronkite was from, uh, was he from Texas too? I think he might have been. Or he, 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 uh, he was, Dan was. Rather was. Okay. No, but all right. Walter Cronkite, I guess he, um, he he was thought to be too old. And and Dan Rather was kind of pushing him out and saying, look, I have an offer to go to ABC. So CBS didn't want to lose Dan Rather. So they pushed out Walter Cronkite. At what advanced age was he pushed out? 64. Uh, 64. You know, I now that I'm 71, I go back and look at things and I look at the ages of things and I, I'm amazed at things. So when when I was little... Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States in the 1950s. I thought, what an old, old man this guy is. John Kennedy is such a young and dynamic guy. I went back and looked. And Eisenhower was elected president when he was 62. He left when he was 70. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just amazing that these, these people, um, you know, look old to me. But, you know, Ronald Reagan, when he was running, you probably heard me say he was 69. I thought I went to Carter and said, look, you can't lose this guy. He's 69. He can't get in bed in the morning. He's 69. So um, age is different. So, David, you and I served in the Carter administration. You don't remember me. I remember you. You worked for Bill Miller. You worked for Bill Miller. No, I worked for Mike Blumenthal. Mike Blumenthal. And, and you stayed at Treasury after Mike left or not? No, no. I was his. So I went back to Brown Brothers then. Okay. Uh, thank you from in New York. But um, 
that was a turbulent period. How did, how did you get that? How did you get that job? Did you know Mike? Uh, Robert Rosa was offered the job before oh. Mike. Uh, oh, he so was. I asked him to go, and he was my mentor. He had hired me into Brown Brothers to be his assistant, and so he said, "I'm not going to go, but you're going to go." And uh, wow. I ended up being Mike's assistant, and then I did the economic policy group staffing, and I okay. actually traveled with the president to the two summits that he had before Mike was fired in Bonn oh. and Tokyo. But I remember you. You you have no idea who I am, but I remember you very well. And I remember Stu Eisenstadt and one day asking me, he said, he said, you know, Rubenstein is brilliant, but I, I don't know if he's going to amount to anything. I'll never forget that. I, <laughs> so uh, that. <laughs> I tell you, the interesting thing is that uh, Carter didn't know anybody when he got elected president. So he yeah. had this thing at the Pond House where he would interview, bring down people. And I will never forget, um, he, he met Mike Blumenthal. Blumenthal, who was then the CEO of Bendix, I think right. he was. I think he was fifty-one or fifty-two. Yep. And um, and and he was so impressed with him, he offered him the job. I think he had offered it to a couple other people. I think that maybe uh, uh, your person, but also I think David Rockefeller uh, and maybe Reg Jones. I'm not sure. Anyway, he gave it to Blumenthal. The reason Blumenthal got fired really was one reason or one one person. You know, I don't know if you remember. His name was Joe Layton. Yeah, oh yes. Joe Layton kept leaking all the time that. The White House staff was screwing things up. Carter was screwing things up. But Blumenthal was great. And so after a while, Hamilton just went into Carter all the time and just complained about it. And eventually they they, they, they got him. Well, they actually got a slew of people. Remember Joe Califano? Right. Yes, that's right. They got they got a lot of them. Uh, but it was Joe Layton that was really the problem, I thought, for Mike. I, so I've seen Mike. And, you know, Mike is now, what, 92 or something like that? A little bit older. Yeah. He's now older than that. I saw him. Uh, one time in yeah, Berlin. Yeah, I, I spoke there one time for him, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I, he was a very impressive guy. Um, and Bill, well, what happened was you may remember the e economic policy group. The rule was you a principal and two deputies or something, and right. it got to be so big, everybody in the world was sitting in the room in the Roosevelt room. It just was a, a nightmare. Anyway, okay, those are the old so, days. So, but what did you learn through that experience that has informed you now? I mean, we had. Miles, we had an energy crisis. We we had hyperinflation. Uh, we had a turbulent period in terms of cabinet turnover. What what did you draw from that? We are both boys in that administration. Yeah. Well, what did I, you draw from that has helped you propel yourself forward? Well, I realized how little I knew in hindsight because I didn't know much. I'm mean, 27 years old, so I, I wasn't qualified for the job. As I like to say, I wasn't qualified, but Carter wasn't qualified. So. We both fit in. Uh, but, um, you know, Carter was, he was highly more qualified. He was 52 years old as well, but he he was he had an engineered mindset. A lot, he wasn't experienced enough. But anyway, um, I just learned that um, the value of connections, knowing people, um, you, if you use some charm, you can get people to do something. Having information is currency. Um, providing information and getting some back is, can be very valuable. Um but, you, you know, you can't know too many people and you can't be too nice to too many people and trying to do favors for people. People remember them. Hmm. You know, the, the favor that people most remember now of all the things that I often ask to do, the thing that people most remember is getting their kid in the college. That's <laughs> what people care about more than anything else. This that is, is true. Num number one thing. Yeah. yeah. And how many phone calls do you get or friends that leave? I, I get them all the time. And, uh, you know, you obviously you have to be very careful what you can do. Um, when I was chairman of the board at Duke, we had a rule. You couldn't call the admissions director. You had to go through the development person. And we funneled it all in. 
But basically, they would sit down and, and assess the likelihood of somebody being a great parent, let's say, a development admit, they would call them. And you know, you make your judgment. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time dealing with that at the various schools now. Miles? Well, just the path kind of after the Carter administration, you now, um, you know the players, you're still in your late 20s. And, um, you know, as I gather, you even are under yeah. the tutelage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I left when I was 31. Um, what happened was, and you probably read this, but I'll say it again for the people who are listening. When you work at the White House and you have an office in the West Wing, people treat you like you're a, a god. And why? Because they want you to get, they want something from you. So they're always lobbying you. So all the time people would come in and lobby me, you know, and not that I was the most powerful one, but I could get to Stuart Eisenstadt or I could get to somebody else and maybe have some influence. So um, for, for these people, I wasn't paying attention to who their clients were that much and what money they were making. They, I just know they were people coming in and they were either friendly with somebody who worked with me or friendly with Stuart or Carter. So they always would say, you are a bright young man. And if you ever want a job, call me. And I said, well, Carter's going to be reelected. I'm going to be here in the second term. And, you know, and why would I need a job? So no, thank you. So after we lost the election, I started calling all these people. And I remember, I'm the guy you said was brilliant, the brightest guy you could call you. And they never call back because, you know, who wants a Carter White House aide who can tell you who's important in the Carter administration when you're working when Reagan's president? So it was uh, the worst period of my professional career in some ways, because although I had gone to a pretty good law school, I had worked at Paul Weiss, a pretty good law firm. I'm at the White House. I'm flying around on Air Force One and Marine One. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm unemployed and unemployable. Um, and and, and so, may, may I also just ask, are, are you married at this time? No, I was not. Um, I was not married. Uh, I, I met the woman I married uh, at the White House, but I wasn't married then. But what happened was um, uh, I, I didn't want to tell my mother that her only child was not only unemployed, but unemployable. <laughs> and so initially I had a fairly arrogant view. So I would send out, I didn't send out resumes to people. I would call them up and say, well, here's my bio. That is, you know, my White House official biography, as if they could care less. It wasn't in the resume form. And I expected to become a partner in a major law firm. And I had to pick out which law firm I was going to be a partner in. And uh, actually, Stuart Eisenstadt, my boss, had always had a, a, a wish to go work for the ultimate political kind of Jewish firm in New York called Paul Weiss. I had been there for two years. Paul Weiss had had Ramsey Clark, Arthur Goldberg, Adlai Stevenson, Ted Sorensen. It was a, you know, an unusual firm. And, and Stuart did not get an offer there when he came out of law school. And he went back to Atlanta. So finally, they came in to him, Ted Sorensen and others, and said after the election, Stuart, we want you to come to be the head of our office in Washington, we're open office. And Stuart said, this is great. And David's already been there and so forth. And then they didn't call him again for three months. And at the end of the transition, he called and said, hey, what about him? I, I, I want to come and they, you haven't heard, you haven't called me in the last two and a half months or so. They said, well, actually, we now realize that you're too close to Carter and Carter is persona non grata. And oh. frankly, we're not that interested anymore. <laughs> so but anyway, um, I actually I wanted to go work with Stuart. I, I, I didn't really want to go work with Stuart. I, I, I just meant to say, because I didn't want to be his deputy the rest of my life. I thought if I went to work for him, I would be his deputy forever. So I wanted to do something different. And all my friends who were about to be partners in law firms, they said, come to my firm, come to my firm. But when I interviewed, I was either too arrogant. Or I didn't know anything. I didn't have a specialty. So I didn't get any job offers, really. And it was like 
Um, I didn't want to tell my mother. I kept telling her I had so many offers. I didn't know which one to take. But, you know, January, February, March, April, May, and no, no, I'm still unemployed. So eventually my mother probably didn't want to tell me, you don't really have any offers, right? But somebody felt sorry for me at a, at a modest size firm that I had never heard of before. And they made me an offer to go in as a kind of a senior associate, not a partner. And that was the only job I had. So I took it. And then I realized very quickly, I'm not, the other firms were right. I wasn't qualified to be a lawyer. I didn't have any expertise. I hadn't specialized in any one thing. All I knew was the Carter White House. I didn't really know anything. I didn't want to be a lobbyist. So if you're not a specialist, you don't want to be a lobbyist. You don't want to raise campaign money and you don't have any expertise. It's, you're probably not easy to build a legal practice. So I, I fumbled around for five years and I realized then that practicing law was simply a business. It hadn't been, it had been a profession. It was in law school, I thought, but it was really a business. And everybody just talked about how much money they were making or not making each month. And so I realized if you're going to be in the business world, you might as well be in a business that maybe you can make more money than you, you, you could make in practicing law. And why I'd never cared about money before I thought I would go back in the next administration. I was getting ready to go in the, when, when Mondial was going to be elected president. Of course, he'd be elected president because everybody knew Reagan was terrible. But um, eventually, I, you know, I kind of drifted away from that. I said, I just, you know, I just didn't want to do that. And um, I, I realized I wasn't a good lawyer. So I, I, I decided to do something else and it worked out. And is this kind of around the time you were a bit under the tutelage of, of Bill Simon? Yeah, well, I read about Bill Simon. That was that that deal occurred, and was it 1986 or seven or something like that? And then he did the famous deal where he, in those days, as you probably know now, buyouts took had one to five percent equity, but if you put in one percent equity, very often they took it out as a one percent fee, so they had no money in the deal. And he did this deal and timed it right, and all those things, and he made a fabulous fortune. That's when I actually I went down to see Bill Miller afterwards, and I said, Bill, you should start a buyout firm. In Washington, you were former Secretary of Treasury. Simon was, and I persuaded him actually to start a firm. It was called uh, W G G G G M Miller G G W Miller and Company, and uh, but he didn't want to be a principal because he didn't want to take principal risks. So he basically he followed my advice. He set up a company. I got him to hire Michael Cardozo, who had been the counsel at the White House, and then some other people I knew, and then. But he kept it as a tiny little firm, and he just was an advisory kind of thing. He never really made it in the principal. So that's why I decided I would build my own principal firm if I could find some people that knew how to do that. Hey, it's Miles. You know, this podcast is called Coffee with the Greats because I think we have great guests, but also because I love coffee. I love drinking it and have built a business around it. You see, I started a coffee roasting club called Bixby. We roast and ship coffee the same day it's ordered for the freshest tasting coffee imaginable. We started roasting coffee for 100 homes and then 1,000, and now we're proud to roast for tens of thousands of households every week across America. Go to BixbyCoffee.com today and see why Bixby is a perfect solution for coffee drinking households. Use code MILES for 30% off your first order. That's BixbyCoffee.com. B-I-X-B-Y coffee.com. So you became entrepreneurial when you realized that you weren't cut out to practice law. Right. That's, that's, that's correct. And uh, in hindsight, um, it was the biggest professional gamble because had I started the firm and it fumbled, it wasn't like law firms were going to come back and say, well, we really want somebody that's that's fumbled building a private equity firm in Washington. Why don't you come back and practice law? Um, but I do remember my mother saying, David, 
you're going to go into business. You don't know anything about business. You don't know anything. I said, well, I, am, I, I don't know. Some, I have some people that maybe I can hire. And she said, David, do me a favor. Keep your law license. So to this day, I still have my membership in the D.C. bar. So I have something to fall back on in case something, you know, uh, doesn't work out in the business world. Yeah. Now that you've been a terrible failure, you could always <laughs> Right. <laughs> Remarkable. Well, I'd just like to point out, um, your mother sounds like an extraordinary woman. She really does. And she sounds like she's really been uh, a, a compass for both your your direction and your anxieties for a great deal of how, your life. Well, how, probably, how, 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 late, how late did she live? She lived to be uh, 86, died about uh, three and a half years ago. Um, both my parents, you know, my parents were blue collar mindset. Right. And uh, when you're a blue collar mindset, you don't work one minute more than you're getting paid for. So my father worked in the post office and he would, you know, punch in and punch out. And if he worked a minute extra, he had to get paid overtime. And then the, the day you're allowed to retire, he retired. So he retired at an age that seemed old to me then, but uh, it was 55. Yeah. And so 55. Um, and they moved to Florida. I, I actually bought him a house. They moved to Florida. And um, basically they were sort of, they worked a little bit down there, sort of retired. But um, my mother was not an educated person, of course, but. She had pretty good sense and knowledge, and uh, lots of people all would call her up all the time for her judgment. So it was hard to get her on the phone because all the relatives and friends were calling all the time for her judgment on stuff. So I could barely get through. <laughs> but you know, she obviously took pride that she had one child, and that one child became better known than she ever expected. Fantastic, Miles. So um, just just moving into the Carlisle Group, you know, you've as you've said. You're not an MBA. You've you've got a, a, a real specialty in um, raising money. The idea: let's build a, a T row price or a fidelity right, right. for equity, not just one fund, but let's have a buyout right. fund, a venture fund, a growth fund, thereby institutionalizing a brand name. And so, right. you know, at that time, being in the room is important. You're asking people for money. You you show up, and you were an extraordinary world traveler. But in the early days, I would basically you know prepare the materials call and get the meeting, fly commercial to the meeting, bring the materials, do the follow-up letters, the follow-up due diligence, and, and then you know hound them to say yes eventually. And um, I found a technique that I use to help raise money, which is, and it's interesting, if you go to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School, any good business school, um, they don't have a course in fundraising. <laughs> and I tell people all the time that most people spend a large part of their life fundraising, either for philanthropic purposes, business purposes, or, or, or political purposes, and, or they're being solicited or they're soliciting, but nobody actually teaches courses really in fundraising at great business schools because it's thought to be, you know, a little bit non-academic. But the truth is um, I had to teach myself how to do it because I didn't have any background in it. And asking people for money is not easy. You have to believe in it. And you, you know, early on, you, what I would do is just say, here's the, I would talk a lot about what's going on in Washington. I found and you may have found this uh, too, true as well. People love to find out what's going on in Washington. So yep. since I probably didn't know more about the Reagan administration than when I was reading the newspapers, but if you go to Europe, you know more than the people in Europe because they didn't read the Washington Post. So all I'm telling them is what's in the Washington Post. They could have read it, but there wasn't anything online then, so they didn't read it. So I'm just giving war stories about politics, and people love to hear that, and people just always fascinated about what's happening in Washington. So I had a very soft approach. I wasn't a big backslapping, suspender-wearing, alcohol-drinking kind of guy, but I was a kind of guy who'd say, look, I have a very cerebral approach, low-key, not pushing you, 
Uh, let me tell you what's going on in Washington. And let me tell you what we're doing and why it's interesting. And, you know, sometimes people would turn me down. Sometimes I would go back and back. And, you know, gradually uh, I got to be better at it. You know, other than that period of a couple of years where your mother kept saying, you know, right. do you have a job do you, or you wouldn't tell her? What, what's been your biggest setback, David? The biggest set, setback in life or in the Carlisle? And like in Carlisle? No, in your life. In my where, biggest where setback? You, yeah, where do you think, what was your biggest failure and how'd, how'd you overcome it? Well, the biggest failure, I, I guess, is... Uh, in my life, I, I didn't live up to the potential. I always wanted to be, you know, smarter than I am, more successful than I am. Uh, you know, hard to do. That's um, hard to do. Other, yeah. like you probably read about all the deals I turned down. I, you know, I turned yeah. down Facebook. I turned down all these deals. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I'd say uh, Amazon stock. I did. I turned that down. Oh, I can't believe that. <laughs> um, I didn't believe in any of those things. I remember my my son-in-law to be told me this classmate of his was starting this company called Facebook. I said, look. This is a dating service for college kids. I've seen this in the 60s. They fail every time. So my advice is don't do anything with them. And then, of course, uh, somebody else put in $30,000. It's now worth $15 billion. You've been fantastically generous to so many American institutions. Uh, what gives you the desire to support these monuments to great Americans and institutions of you know, that really are the hallmarks of our country. Why, why did you pick that area of concentration? Well, um, two points. One, um, it is an interesting phenomenon. If if I put up $10 million to fix the Washington Monument, it gets a lot of attention. If I give $50 million for it, which I have, to pancreatic cancer research at Sloan Kettering, nobody pays attention, nobody cares. If right. Bill Gates gives a billion dollars to malaria research, nobody cares. Why is it? Well, it's because so few people are doing what I was doing in that, that area. But secondly, I think it just caught people's attention. You're doing something for the country in a certain way that I've called patriotic philanthropy. But like most things in life, it happened by serendipity. I didn't hire McKinsey and say, McKinsey, I really want to do something where people think I'm a good guy. So come up with some recommendations. If I'd done that, they probably would have come up with the cancer research or something or another. But it just happened that I was invited to this one event to view the Magna Carta. I viewed it. They told me it was going to be sold outside, leave the country. I just had to go back and buy it the next night. I had some, you know, I, I we'd done a liquefaction at Carlisle. I had a fair amount of cash then. And I said, okay, I'm going to go back and buy it, whatever the price is. And I went back and bought it for half the price that I thought it was going to be. So I was feeling pretty good. Then I said, I'm going to give it to the National uh, to the National Archives on a permanent loan. And then when I die, it'll get it forever. And so that just led to my buying other historic documents. And that led to my, when the Washington Monument had earthquake damage, you know, fixing it up and people were surprised. And I started fixing other buildings. And the reason is, to remind people the history and heritage of our country. And it's a little niche that I have. Um, I don't have that much money compared to all the really, really wealthy people, but it's enough to make a difference in so fixing up the monuments, memorials. It's, you know, it's interesting and uh, I enjoy it. And you're kind of, people feel you're giving back to the country. And so I've gotten involved with all the Washington institutions that you know. So I'm the biggest donor to the, the Smithsonian, the, the National Archives, the Lincoln Center, all the uh, Kennedy Center, all these things, because it doesn't take that much money relative to what Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos has. And I'm interested in, I like American history and so forth, but I'll tell you one anecdote. Maybe you've read this one. So I, I decided I, after I did the Washington Monument, I wanted to do some other things. So I said, I'm going to fix the Lincoln Memorial. So I called the Park Service and said, Lincoln Memorial looks shabby to me. And they said, well, yes, it's run down. It's terrible, but we can't get money out of Congress. And I said, well, how much money to take? And I, I, they told me, I said, okay, I'll put up that money, but give me a tour. And I got a tour. We went underground to Lincoln Memorial. Turns out 
that it's built on a marsh. So they had to have put pylons that are down, you know, into the earth, like 125 feet. But you go down there and you see graffiti from 1918 or 1919 when they built it, the same kind of graffiti you would expect today. And then, um, so anyway, when we finally decided we're going to make the announcement, um, we go there and I'm sitting in front of the Lincoln Memorial. It's covered by C-SPAN. And um, so I called my mother and said, hey, I'm going to make an announcement today about the Lincoln Memorial. It's going to be on C-SPAN. You should watch. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden we're getting ready to make the announcement. I'm going to make this donation to fix the thing. And it starts snowing. And the park service says, well, we're the park service. We don't, you know, melt in the snow. So if you're okay, Mr. Rubenstein, we'll keep going. I said, okay, I don't, you know, okay, I'm here. I got a coat. So finally my, my cell phone rings and I call it and it's my mother. She says, David, I'm watching on C-SPAN. Put your hat on. You have not have a hat on. You're going to catch a cold. Great said, Jewish okay. mother. Right. So uh, I, I got a hat. I put it on and we went through the announcement. But the reason I do it is, uh, you know, look, nobody is upset when somebody comes to you and says, you've done something good for your country. Yeah. And it's an interesting phenomenon. I have a new book coming out um, in uh, next September. It's called The American Experiment. It's about what are the things that came together to make America so unique? And in part of it, I talk about um, why are people prepared to die for this country? Nobody ever says I'm prepared to die for my neighborhood. I'm prepared to, to die for my youth group. I'm prepared to die for my state, but people are prepared to die for their country. Why is it? Well, it's just something about the country that makes this country and other countries too feel that it's worth dying for in case of many people. I interviewed for the book, Jack Jacobs, who, was, uh, who won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And, uh, and he describes what it's like to feel like you're about to die and why you don't, you don't regret it because you think you're doing it for your country. So I feel okay. like I'm doing these things for my country, but in a less dangerous way than, than going in the military. <laughs> Can you reflect just just a little more on, you know, this reality? I, I'm passionate about history. I was an English and history major. You know, a handsome room to me is a room full of books. Right. Um, You're unusual in your generation. Right. right. When, when you look up, you know, the, the type of word into Google and you can see usage over time, um, phrases like posterity. In fact, the specific phrase, preserving for posterity, both in our founding documents over and over in the correspondence of you know the first 200 years of Americans, um, and that that usage has dwindled, continuing to now. Now, That's obviously, uh, our means of communication. But w- w- why is this concept of preserving for posterity uh, undervalued, as it were? Well, um, a couple of things I would say. One, um, we, we of course we don't teach history that much anymore. You've heard all my speeches, probably, or all the, those yeah. things about it. And people are afraid because of uh, of um, uh, of catching up with the Chinese or whatever. We have to have more technology. We have to have you know, no history, no social science courses, and you're not going to get a job. And so people don't really think about the past that much. Um, that's one thing. And I, I think people are so future-oriented and, and, and then fall in love with new technology, the latest thing, that they don't really want to look at what happened 100 years ago and 200 years ago, I, I guess. Uh, it is amazing. And you've probably seen my speeches on, on how people who are native born citizens can't pass the basic citizenship test. You, you're familiar right. with that? Yes. So it, yes. It's a sad situation, but it's true. Um, it, 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 it's, 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 people don't know much about history. It's amazing how people don't know anything. Well, and you've quoted, what is it? 30% of college graduates never read a book again after graduating. That's correct. Uh, 30% never read another book in their life. Um, and people are amazed at that, but it's true. According to the statistics, I'm involved with literacy a lot. And that, that's, that's where they come from. I mean, 50% of people haven't been pre-COVID in a bookstore in five years or, 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 or ordered a book online in five years. 50% of the population. Just think how important it was to our parents 
that we read. Right. right. So I became recently, I'm, I'm in the last 10 years or so, I've become a big book collector, rare book collector. And I have, uh, I think, more copies of the Federalist Papers than anybody else. And I, I, the only guy I'm competing with is the guy from Dallas who, who's buying everything I'm not buying. Uh, Harlan Crow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I bought more. I own more copies of the Declaration of Independence than anybody. Um, I'll give them all to the various agencies. But uh, so I, I buy more copies of the Declaration than anybody or more copies of the Federalist Papers. And then I have a whole bunch of other historic documents. It's it's fun. It's it's interesting. I just wish I was younger. <laughs> David, have you read uh, Thomas Frick's book, First Principles? I have not. It's excellent. And what strikes me about that, it goes back, of course, and takes the founding fathers and what they valued. Right. And the word was virtue more than anything else. Um, and of course, they had different definitions of virtue back then, but they accepted, they adapted, and the way you were educated back then was from the Greeks and Romans. It, it's worth reading because I can't I think will. of many, many senators or congresspeople today that would ever have focused in that way on honor and virtue and the kind of things that they had to knit together to get this country started. Oh, the founding fathers who were in the Constitutional Convention, they would not, uh, in my view, have voted to impeach or convict Trump. They would have just hung him. They wouldn't have bothered with an impeachment trial because they wouldn't believe that a guy could do something like that and, and get away with it. But okay. I think they would have put him on elbow with uh, Napoleon. Right, maybe so. Uh, <laughs> And so outside of just family and work, uh, what is the, the young current version of David Rubenstein um, thinking about? And, and, and what kind of community are they forging when, you know, artificial intelligence, when you were reading five newspapers every day, uh, who give encouragement to that young person, if you will? Well, I think um, the most important thing you should try to do with your life is find something that you enjoy that doesn't hurt anybody else. And that gives you fulfillment. As you've heard me, heard me say, Thomas Jefferson said the purpose of life to some extent is a pursuit of happiness. He never defined that in the ensuing 50 years. Hmm. But happiness is the most elusive thing in life. As you know, you know, a lot of rich people who are not happy. You know, a lot of poor people are not happy, but a lot of rich people are not happy as well. And so I tell students all the time, find something you enjoy. You know, take a while, experiment. I didn't start Carl Alto. I was 37. So you got plenty of time to do something. And I, and, uh, you know, I think there's plenty of time to do it. Even when you're 37, I know people starting companies when you're 40, but find something you find fulfilling because if you don't find it fulfilling, what's the point of life? Now, nowadays, a lot of people are fulfilled by starting companies, not going into the government, maybe, but obviously a lot of people want to go in the government too. Um, I think people um, should serve their country in some way. If you can't do it by serving in the, in the, in the government, then maybe do it by volunteering or philanthropy or something. But um, you know, we, we all are, you know, your father and I are fortunate that we got reasonably successful in life and got lucky, but a lot of people our age didn't. And, you know, I, I'm sure you're probably aware of this. 23% of the people born in 1949 are gone. So, you know, every day more and more gone. I, I, my parents used to read the obituaries. I said, what are you reading the obituaries for every day? Now I read the obituaries every day to see which of my friends are not here anymore or which people younger than me died. And I'm saying, how come I'm still around? This guy's only 69. He died. So, you know, I'm very lucky. And in the end, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm just happy that uh, I can, you know, when you get to a certain age, and you probably heard me say this, you know that your brain or your body is going to give out at some point. And it's a funny thing with your body. You, you, you've had it your whole life. 
And, you know, you look at it every day and you say, okay, which of you body parts is going to check out on me prematurely? You don't know. But something's going to give up soon. The longer you live, something's going to break down. Or then the brain, um, you know, that Alzheimer's or the equivalent, some type of dementia or some other kind of disease will come. And you, that's why I'm now doing what I call sprinting to the finish line, getting everything done I can before something falls apart. So I'm racing to get my bucket list done. And on number one on my bucket list in the last this week was doing your podcast. So now I've done that. So now I don't know what I'm going to live for in the next week. I don't have nothing to live for. Uh, it's a very shallow bucket list. That was your problem. So I got to find something new. All right. So thank, 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 on, thank on, on this last this last note, because you're still doing this. I don't know what energizer battery you have, but you have made the point that you know, you have an interview show and, and podcast that it's a relatively new method of knowledge exchange. Right, you know, right, you've said, right. look, we don't have the interview transcripts of right. Julius Caesar or William Shakespeare right, right, or Henry VIII. Um, can just going out, can you, uh, what charges you up about interviewing people? It's such a service, oh. and, but it's, it's also this long form, you know, the internet is so good at cutting out context. Right. And so, yeah. How, oh, how did um, you stumble on this great talent of yours? Well, first, um, when I was growing up, my mother called me a yenta, which is a Yiddish word for, for wanting to know too much, you know, bothering people, being trying to know everybody's business. So maybe I got it from that. But I guess to be serious, what really happened was, and you probably heard me say this, but for your audience, let me repeat it. Um, I used to hire prominent people to come to Carlisle events, former presidents, of the United States, secretaries of state, and pay them very large fees. And they would speak to our audience and they were very often boring. So I kind of said, geez, maybe I can make it more lively if I did an interview. I don't know why I said interview. And so I thought I could maybe intersperse like humor. I have some a good sense of humor. And so I started doing things and making people like Hillary Clinton and Ben Bernanke look funny and interesting. And people liked it. And really? then when, when Vernon Jordan said to me, David, replace me as the, as the, as the president of the Economic Club of Washington, just get business people to speak. I, I did that. And then I realized business people were boring. And so I did, went to the interview format. Then people at Bloomberg saw it and so forth. And they put me on. And the reason I like it is, one, you can get to see people and get a connection with people you wouldn't otherwise get to. So how many times is Bill Gates going to call me up and say, David, I want to spend time with you? Probably not. Or Jeff Bezos. So as an interviewer, you're not threatening because I'm not a threatening interviewer. But I can get to know and hang out with very famous people in all walks of life. Secondly, to prepare for the interviews, I have to do a lot of reading. So that keeps my brain active. Uh, third, um, I might you know, meet somebody through the interview process that maybe I could do something with, maybe in the business world, maybe somebody would never invest with me or take my call, will take my call. So it's a good way to get to know people and it's a good way to keep your brain sharp. And if you have a sense of humor, it kind of is fun and the intellectual sparring is fun just as you enjoy it. So that's why I do it. And I'm surprised more people haven't thought of this. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Coffee with the Greats. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast so that the next episode will appear magically on your phone when it comes out. And check out Bixby Coffee to discover a better way to brew at home. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order and free shipping at BixbyCoffee, B-I-X-B-Y coffee.com. Bixby Coffee.